This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today on the download, We have quite a bit of interesting news coming out of the business and investing world. Uh, The marquee headline is Twitter board approving the sale of Twitter to Elon Musk for roughly $53 per share, quite a hefty premium over the uh, last traded value when the offer was initially tendered and the letter of intent was delivered to the SEC. So this has been kind of an interesting uh, evolving story as there were uh, different... Uh, camps coming out saying that Twitter's board was definitely not on board after it was said that Elon Musk would be joining the board, then wasn't after buying personally a 9.3 per stake in the company on publicly traded shares. And then rumors circulating that a poison pill method was going to be used to prevent the sale to Elon. And then seemingly overnight, well, literally overnight, the board met on Sunday evening uh, to review and discuss the matter. And it looks like it's going to go through. So the ink hasn't necessarily been put to paper yet, but uh, all indications are moving forward that Twitter will be taken private by Elon Musk. So there'll certainly be something interesting to watch. Share values had spiked on the news and have continued to rise. So once the lock-in is put in, we'll see how much money everyone actually makes from this. Hopefully the investors, especially the small individual ones, can make a good amount of money on this purchase from that premium that is being paid on the shares. Big movement in crypto news. Fidelity, the large brokerage house, has indicated that they are going to be rolling out plans for allowing 401k accounts to invest in cryptocurrency. This is amazing news, as many people know that during the tax law changes of 2018, you can no longer like-kind exchange with a like-kind tax-free exchange cryptocurrencies. You now have to treat any sale or exchange or uh, transfer of cryptocurrency as a tax lot for accounting purposes. So the uh, tax accounting on cryptocurrency investing got considerably more convoluted and much more expensive for investors. This brought to light the big advantage of utilizing tax-sheltered accounts such as 401ks and IRAs like we do here at Advanta IRA for investing in these types of asset classes. So seeing that the adoption by an extremely large brokerage house such as Fidelity only bodes well for the continued acceptance of this type of asset, especially with regard to retirement retirement plans and the ability of people to not pay taxes on these types of investments. So awesome news. Very happy about that coming out of Fidelity this week. Gold has seen a pretty major rebound on Monday, 427, 2022, uh, as the trading had seen a two-month low in mid-April. So good to see that the commodities market for gold bouncing back up. It was uh, seen as kind of a big hedge of uh, inflation during the initial Uh, basically kind of scare of the uh, Ukraine conflict and not to diminish anything with that. It is still going on. There are still very tragic things coming out of that part of the world. But to see the commodities coming back up into trading at uh, higher levels is definitely good to see, especially with how that was affecting the commodities markets. Now, moving over in the world from uh, Eastern Europe to uh, South Central Asia, semiconductor stocks are continuing to fall despite record earnings due to continued shortages in global supply chains. We're still seeing large lockdowns in places like uh, Taipei and Taiwan and Southeast Asia and places like uh, Shanghai and China. 
uh, it's just it's really hard to kind of pin down when we're going to see a stabilization of supply chain for uh, silicon wafers and PCB printed circuit boards. So it's going to really be kind of interesting to see when we're going to see a stabilization for that particular market sector, because it is still just a wild roller coaster of, of trading emotions when it comes to what we're actually seeing. Because, you know, even with that, we're seeing record earnings, but we're seeing share prices slump in that sector. So it is definitely an odd paradigm to look at when looking at uh, the semiconductor market. So again, Southeast Asia still battling with uh, social and economic issues or social and political issues uh, with regard to COVID, with lockdowns and manufacturing. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see how that works out. But you know, some good news, at least places like the Tesla factory in Shanghai have reopened. So hopefully, maybe that can be used as a bit of a model for production and manufacturing in those par- in those countries in that part of the world for uh, kind of easing the supply chain burden on semiconductors because that has everything to do with not just computers, like you know, you're sitting down maybe uh, typing away on an email, but also things like uh, vehicles, you know, computers for vehicles causing uh, big backups and supply chain issues and causing markets for things like used cars and new cars to just skyrocket. So there's a very large downstream trickle effect from the issues of supply chain and semiconductors. So hopefully this does rectify itself relatively soon because that's one of the last big holdouts of the issues we've seen from the past two years of COVID in the, in the world. Home price indexes rose almost 20%. That's right. Not only just double digits, but into the 20% range between January and the end of February, into March, based on the Case-Shiller index evaluation. This is absolutely crazy uh, to me to see that how much home prices have appreciated and spiked just in the very first quarter of this year of 2022. It is uh, quite, quite interesting to see uh, just how, how much things have risen and how hot they are getting. And it's kind of getting to the point, I mean, you know, we've been saying this, you know, throughout the entirety of COVID and before, you know, how high, where, where's the ceiling to all this, uh, you know, run up on, on real estate prices. And it's, again, you know, we, a lot of people would say, oh, it was then and now, and, you know, people have been wrong consecutively for the past six or seven years on when home prices might cool off. So although 20% rise in the matter of 60 to 90 days does seem maybe unsustainable, you know, who's to say how high these things can actually go. So of course, this does have, you know, large effects, both positive and negative, Uh, you know, real estate investors are seeing a positive from the appreciation and the equity growth in their assets, but first time home buyers people like renters and uh, maybe lower fixed income individuals are really starting to see the squeeze from this. It is, um, you know, a, a definitely a, an interesting mixing of paradigms of, of prosperity and despair for some people in the housing market. So it'll be interesting to see where this continues to go. Um, how much higher will it go? Nobody knows. So get on the ride and see where it takes you. Interesting news out of drink uh, manufacturer uh, Pepsi, uh, they have raised their revenue outlook despite higher costs, but this is due to record sales. So PepsiCo is uh, seeing significantly higher costs from things like aluminum cans, from raw materials for their syrups and formulations, but the uh, significant increase in demand has raised their revenue outlook according to their last earnings report. So it'll be really interesting to see where the continuation of share prices go for Pepsi, which is trading a little bit positive to flat on Monday of 420. Uh, five as of the recording of this podcast. 
Streaming giant Netflix last week saw a huge dip in their share price, almost a 25% single-day trading dip in their share price as they indicated that they were going to lose several hundreds of thousands, if not millions of subscribers due to uh, increased competition and also their restriction on password sharing for households. So this is kind of interesting and the reason I bring it up, even though it's not necessarily um, immediately topical to this week's news, is that Warner Brothers has seen seen a 13% revenue bump in their subscription services, such as uh, Discovery Plus and the other uh, intellectual properties that Warner Brothers owns. They have seen a 13% rise in their revenues, um, you know, kind of feeding off the exodus of Netflix users. So this will certainly be interesting to see is where the you know, exit of capital and investment comes from streaming giant Netflix and where that goes, because it's not just going to disappear into the ether. It's going to go somewhere. And places like Warner Brothers, Paramount, and all these other streaming platforms are going to see it come to them in some form or fashion. I really don't think we're going to see a trend back to traditional cable. You know, streaming is here and it's here to stay. So it'll be interesting to see where that additional capital and investment goes, because it's certainly not going to Netflix. And lastly, on the download today, UPS uh, heats, uh, beats profit estimates as e-commerce continues to run wild. E-commerce has just gone gangbusters over the past two years during COVID when obviously everyone was not going out and doing actual uh, point of sale and brick and mortar retail shopping. So UPS handling the bulk of that load for domestic uh, shipping for e-commerce places like uh, Target and some portions of Amazon and last and final mile carry final mile final mile carrier services. So it'll be really interesting to see where this continues to go as the popularity and the really dependence on e-commerce has just you know exponentially risen. So it'll be kind of interesting to see where the share prices of places like logistics companies go because it really is going to be something that is is going to be, need to be closely watched. Something that people wouldn't necessarily think of as a place to make money would be investing in you know, something, something such as a logistics company, but, you know, with the insanely increasing uh, reliance on e-commerce, it's certainly somewhere to look for for value when it comes to investing. So this has been kind of an interesting uh, jump on different areas of the world, different market sectors, uh, so we have a lot of things going on. So thanks for joining us today. This has been The Download. Today on the what is, what is a poison pill? A poison pill is a defense strategy used by a target firm. Uh, in this case, we'll use the example of Twitter, as a lot of the talking heads had indicated that they were going to be using this type of strategy to prevent the acquisition uh, by Elon Musk, which is why I'm covering it today in the what is, uh, makes themselves be less attracted to the potential buyer to avoid a potential hostile takeover. This allows the existing shareholders the right to purchase additional shares at a discount, effectively diluting the ownership and interest of a new hostile party. The poison pill often comes in two forms, the flip-in and flip-over strategies. The flip-in poison pill strategy allows involves allowing the shareholders, except for the acquirer, to purchase additional shares at a discount, thus purchasing additional shares 
for the company uh, with instantaneous profits and diluting the value of the company by issuing the new shares. The flip over poison pill is a strategy that allows stockholders of the target company to purchase the shares of the acquiring company at a deeply discounted price if the hostile takeover attempt is successful. For example, a target company shareholder may gain the right to buy the stock of its acquirer at a two-for-one rate, thereby diluting the equity in the acquiring company. The acquirer may avoid going ahead with such acquisitions if it perceives a dilution of value post-acquisition. This is what a poison pill is, and this has been The What Is. Welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today we are pleased to welcome Dan Hanford with PassiveInvesting.com, an apartment syndicator and self-storage investor, to talk with us about a couple, or I shouldn't say a couple, several uh, red flags and kind of a checklist for those interested in getting invested into uh, into uh, syndicated multifamily and commercial real estate. So again, Dan, great to have you on. Thanks for being with us. Alex, thank you so much. Appreciate you for, appreciate you having me on, and uh, looking forward to sharing with the audience here. Absolutely. So, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself. You know, what makes Dan Hanford Dan Hanford, and uh, how'd you kind of get to uh, this point in your career where you're doing uh, syndicated real estate investments? Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the my, one of the things in my background is that I'm a chiropractor by trade, and when I first got out of chiropractic school, I started my own clinic. And what I found in those first couple of years is that I was kind of uh, kind of stuck in a job, even though I was working for myself, because I, uh, for one, was capping my income by, uh, I can only see so many patients an hour myself. And whenever I want to go on vacation, I still had to continue to pay for the utilities and the rent and the, the employees that were there. So I never really wanted to go on vacation. So of course, that was causing an imbalance in family and work and stuff like that. And so I quickly learned that I wanted to be able to uh, do some things to be able to allow myself to have some more time if you want more free time. And so I hired on some additional associate chiropractors to work for me and then ended up hiring on some medical doctors and nurse practitioners to work for me and then grew that from one clinic to four clinics and ended up cutting out the chiropractic services completely to build a referral network with some of these outside alternative health providers because the types of uh, treatments that we provide are more alternative medicine type stuff like prolotherapy, PRP, stem cell treatments for orthopedic conditions, and then also some general injection based therapies uh, for arthritic conditions. And so we wanted to be able to build that kind of outside network of referrals coming in. So we cut out the chiropractic in the office. It made it so that I didn't have to be seeing patients, right? So that was a, was a, a big freeing up of my time, but it allows us to be able to focus on uh, the, the, the medical component of it and allow us to be able to grow from that one to four clinic range. And then uh, my wife and I, you know, even today still own those clinics 100%. They're 100% debt free and they cash flow very nicely. And when, when that happens, that obviously causes another problem, which is taxes, right? And so the, the taxes is really what ultimately led us to where we are today is, you know, writing large six-figure checks to the government when you're working your rear end off all year long uh, is a little bit disheartening. And so being able to find ways to reduce that tax by liability, real estate was that ticket. So first started passively investing my Myself and other syndications and other types of real estate offerings, and then uh, ended up hiring a mentor and learning how to do it our how, how to do it myself, and then partnered with our other two managing partners that we have to be able to create the passiveinvesting.com company that we have today. And 
um, right now we've acquired just over a billion in assets since 2018 and have raised just over $400 million from our investors and uh, are continuing to um, seek other um, asset classes in addition to multifamily and self-storage. Uh, we just recently launched into the hotel and hospitality space as well as uh, the express car wash space. And so being able to have different options available to our investors allows us to have some diversification uh, for those investors that are investing alongside us. Yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting uh, you know intro you just gave. I just uh, interviewed, I don't know if you know her, I've ever run cross paths with uh, Chris Larson I just did an interview with him as well. And uh, he kind of had a similar trajectory of investing in car washes is kind of a new thing. I never really thought about syndicated investors doing that. So kind of odd that I'd hear that twice in the same day, but definitely an interesting uh, path going from being a chiropractor to a, uh, to an apartment investor full time. So always good to see how people land in this. And I think it's important for people to understand listening to this, that I don't think I've, I've yet uh, in the, you know, let's see, this is uh, almost uh, a little bit over half a year I've been doing this. Uh, I think this is like our 30th or some odd episode that we've done. Uh, have I ever talked to someone or in my 10 years of, of being in financial services and real estate investing, met someone that started their career path with commercial real estate or real estate in general? Um, you know, some people I, I would say, you know, maybe start in the single family realm, but uh, you know, if, uh, if, if you're thinking, oh, well, I haven't been doing it for, you know, a long time or how do we kind of get started? Almost no one has kind of, you know, started at this level, um, you know, with, with anything. And most of the time it's a second or even third career trajectory for people in their lives. So just understand that this kind of stuff is attainable. And that's uh, kind of what we're going to cover today. Uh, you have kind of developed a, uh, a punch list of uh, red flags and things to look out for, for the uh, starting investor looking to get into doing uh, a syndication investing. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And so this this list of, you know, I would say these red flags, I have seven of them. I don't know if we'll have time to get through all of them, but if we can get through a few of them, I'll you know, give you an opportunity to find another way you'll be able to find it on our website if you wanted to look at it a little bit further for those of you who are listening. But uh, this list of these red flags is is the, the, the title of the article is the red flags for passive apartment investing. But these are are, are, are red flags that are um, that should be looked for in any type of real estate private syndication, right? Where, where there's a group of people and there's an operator and they're pooling money to be able to buy an asset. So, and this this was put together by my wife and I because we have reviewed a lot of different offerings, hundreds of them um, from various operators. And we currently have in our portfolio about 67 different passive LP positions with about 17 different operators around the country. And so and that's how we came up with this list of these red flags. And these, these red flags are not cautionary flags. They're not yellow flags, right? This doesn't mean you just pause and you know maybe do the investment. If, this, if one of these red flags are present, you don't do it. I mean, these are these are true red flags for us, and you know these are, are red flags that we've come up with for for us and our personal portfolio. So they might not match exactly for what you're looking for, but I would highly recommend you reviewing these to be able to see um, you know how they would fit with your portfolio as you continue to expand and grow and even uh, you know enter the syndication space as a passive investor. I think that's a great point you bring up. So these are these are the stop, drop, and run away things, not the uh, reevaluate and uh, circle back kind of things, right? Correct. Exactly. These are right. the about face. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, let's uh, let's start with number one. What you got for us? 
So one of the things that is really often misunderstood in these real estate syndications is that people think that we're just buying real estate, right? And that's actually a big, big, a big mistake to think that you're just buying real estate. Because when you buy a large apartment complex for 30, 40, $50 million, you're buying an, a fully operational business that actually just so happens to have real estate attached to, which is the nice thing, right? But you're still, you still have people that you have to manage. You still have processes and systems to put in place. You have KPIs that you have to manage. So that's, that's a business, right? So you're buying a fully operational business with a great benefit to it, which is the real estate that has lots of depreciation on it, on it, right? So one of the red flags for finding operators to invest in is if you're investing with an operator that has no successful background in business, that's the red flag, right? So if they have, if the operator has no successful background in business, then you probably don't want to be investing with them, right? Now the key word here is successful, right? Since I know people, and I'm sure you know how know people that have that know how to run a business, but they know how to run it into the ground, right? I mean, so you want to make sure that you, you qualify that they have, have some form of successful background in business and they actually know how to run that type of business. Now, do you think that it's something to look past maybe, you know, like we said, this, or like I said, there's a lot of people that, you know, this is rarely their first foray into profession. Um, you know, they've, they've come from many different walks of life. Like you said, you're, you were a, you were a chiropractor before this. Um, so what kind of, and analysis do you need to do on saying, okay, should I just look to, you know, what they've done in real estate? Should I look past that? Um, you know, is there a track record of like how long you go back for? Because, you know, everyone, you know, you know, just, just, you know, some things don't always work out, but you know, if they've had, you know, five years of track record uh, or like how many deals, what do you kind of metrically use to analyze um, that historical aspect of, of looking at what they've done? Sure. So, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be specific to real estate, right? Like it has, to, but it has to be related to a business. And, and, and I would say, if you look at anybody's background, they probably could point to a business that did not do well. Right. But it's how they responded to that business. And what did they do after Did They learned from their mistakes and then they ran a successful company or have they always just started a business, didn't work out and it failed, started a business, didn't work out and it failed. Cause those are going to set yourself up for failure. If you try to go into business with somebody like that. Um, but this, this red flag, it is a little bit harder to verify, right? Because people can tell you that they ran a business. They had, they had an exit, right. They had a successful exit, but but so, and so this was this is one of those things where you can't just like you know pull it up on online to figure out how successful somebody was. It's a matter of asking the sponsor directly. You know, well, well, tell me a little bit about your background and your and, and do you have any background or success in business? And you know, tell me a little bit more about yourself. And is there anybody I can call and contact to verify or tell me a little bit more as a reference about your background in business and that you know you are you are legitimate? Now, obviously, when you have an operator that has had multiple successful exits in real estate, obviously that, that trumps a lot of it, right? Uh, but we're really talking about if you're trying to invest in somebody who's a newer syndicator, newer operator that you don't know, if, you don't know necessarily whether or not they're going to have success in the real estate business or the real estate game. You've got to do some additional digging in some other type of business that allows you to see that successful background in business, right? Because that, that if, if, they, if they're a new operator and they have no successful background in business, you probably want to think twice. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, and if, if you are, you know, apologies, it's been a little bit redundant, but uh, in almost any 
you know, syndicated deal uh, where you have people coming in, you're going to have probably more than one general general partner. Um, so if, you know, let's say there is someone inexperienced, how, how far down that chain do you go or how do you identify which person you place the most weight on when trying to figure out, you know, what their successes have been? Well, I mean, I think it, I think it, you had to look at the whole picture, right? Um, you have to look at, you know, the different opportunities that they have had and uh, what they did with them. And then also looking at the successes that they have had and also looking at the failures and people and people who have had failures usually are pretty open to wanting to talk about them, right? Because they've learned from them, right? But if you don't want to talk about, and that's the thing, that's another good thing you could probably do too, is, is even asking these different operators, tell me about a situation, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in real estate, but a situation in business where you quote unquote failed and how you responded to it, right? How did you get yourself back up and how did you fix it? Because we're not, we're not all going to be perfect, but it's also about how you respond to those things too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a very great point um, of looking at, you know, this as, as not just buying real estate, but as, as a business, because for, for those of you that aren't aware, a, a piece of commercial real estate is not just, you know, a block of apartments. There is the management of the actual property, which typically is on site or done by a larger, you know, entity. There's so many different moving parts, especially when you're talking about maybe an apartment building that has 300, 400 doors. It's not just that single family home and that one tenant. It's all of these things being administered at once. So looking at it holistically, I think it's a very great point that you make, Dan. So uh, any other points that you'd like to kind of bring up on that initial uh, first red flag of business experience and failures? No, I think that's a, that's a good kind of one to start with. And it's a, it's a big one, which is why I, I have it as like the, the, the very first one that I like to cover. Cause a lot of times it gets, it, get, it does get missed because it is, it is, is a little bit harder to verify some of those things, but this is really about just having a great conversation and, and, and knowing the operator that you're actually investing with and to making sure that they have some sort of, you know, successful background in business. And I want to go ahead and, and move into kind of this, this next uh, um, red flag um, and this, oh, before I do that, there is one other thing um, that I think we, we should bring up, Alex, about the first one. If you have an operator that has multiple uh, um, managing partners, that it doesn't mean that every single one of the managing partners has to have a successful background in business. There has to be at least one of them that does, right? Because you need to make sure that they have somebody on their team that has experienced different challenges and they've overcome them. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have all three of them having some sort of successful background in business. So I wanted to clarify that as well, because there's a lot of people that don't have a really big successful background in business. Maybe they've been in business, but they've been working for somebody else and they, they have a successful work business working, I mean, a successful background working for somebody else. But owning their own company and doing having their own business, they don't, but they can team up and, and partner with other people who have to make a great solid operations team. So you can do that as well. Um, kind of the same thing with this red flag number two, uh, you'd never want to invest with a part-time operator because this is a full-time business and it must be treated as such. There's so many people that are trying to get into this kind of apartment syndication business and they want to keep their 
they also want to keep their W2 income, right? They're not, they're not all in at all, right? Um, and what, the way I look at it is, is I've worked very hard for the money that I have. And I don't want somebody else who's not all in to be managing my investment. And I know with these, with being an operator myself, that this is a full-time job. This should not be done at a, on a part-time basis. And there are, you know, you know, gurus and coaches out there that teach you that you can run this like a, a hobby type business than the nights and the weekends, right? And then eventually once you, once it commands full-time effort, you can you can quit. Or once it replaces your income, you can quit your full-time job and become a full-time operator. Um, I, I truly believe if somebody wants to do that, then they should partner with somebody else who's full-time as a part-time operator themselves. And you know, get their their experience level up, and get their track record up, and then eventually quit their W two, and then go out and start their own full time operations if they want to do it that way. But you always want to make sure that you are you are asking are are, are all of the managing partners full time in the business because you want to make sure that you have your money that you've earned so much so, so you you've spent a lot of time and energy effort in your life earning. You want to make sure that somebody who is all in is managing your investment. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, it's. Uh you know, having someone that is, you know, fully committed to being a good steward of your capital that you're putting with them. Now, one thing that kind of come up, you know, obviously, it's, it's kind of easy for you to say, okay, well, yeah, I don't want, you know, the guy that's still managing my local Bank of America branch, you know, nine to five being the, you know, head of this syndication, but more maybe to the point, you know, what, what does it look like to see, you know, maybe someone stretched too thin. So, you know, obviously, you know, each syndication takes time. Is there maybe something where you say, you know, you go to the person, they say, yep, you know, I'm a full-time operator of syndicated real estate, but I'm also the general partner of, you know, 20 different syndications. You know, that to me might be a little bit of, a, of an issue saying, okay, well, how much time are you devoting to each one just as, you know, the, the other portion? So is there something that you would look to to saying, hey, you know, I want to make sure that this person is adequately looking at it? Uh, or do you kind of look at, you know, saying, hey, you know, there's a team around me that also helps and I do this full time. Is there any kind of weight to that? Or is that kind of a moot point? You want to make sure that they are just strictly focused on real estate and specifically um, operational real estate of, of commercial multifamily? Yeah, that's a great point, Alex, that you bring up about, you know, being spread too thin, because, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I like to see is that as somebody's portfolio is growing, their team is also growing with them. And so one of the things that that we've done here at PassiveInvesting.com is, you know, we, the our three managing partners, myself, Danny and Brandon got together in the very beginning, and we made a commitment that, you know, any of the asset management fees that come into our properties to our PassiveInvesting.com LLC account, our operating account, would be used not to go put into our own personal pockets and pat our own pockets, but it would be used to continue to grow and expand our team so that as our portfolio grew, our team was growing at the same at the same rate because the more asset management fees we have coming in, it allows us to hire more and more people. And so you do want to make sure that you have an operator who maybe in the beginning, who's full-time, I, I, when we were, we were all three of us, when we were full-time in the business and we're still full-time, but I'm just saying when it was just the three of us, we were, we were spreading ourselves too thin, right? Um, and so once we felt like that we were spreading ourselves too thin, that's when we were like, okay, we need to go hire somebody to help us with this area and that area. And now we have 35, 36 full-time people that are working directly with PassiveInvesting.com because we, as we continue to grow, we needed to continue to grow um, our, 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 the size of our team members to be able to support the portfolio that we were, um, that we were growing. So it's a great point to, to make sure that, Yes, in the beginning, they need to make sure that they're full time, but 
as they continue to acquire properties. If somebody has 20 properties, Alex, like you mentioned, and it's still just them running it. Yes. I would say that's a bit, that's another big red flag as well. Yeah, no, it's, that's just one of those things where it kind of popped into my head. You know, it's, you know, it's great. Yeah. You're full time, but you also need to be able to commit adequate, you know, attention to, to that. You know, if you all of a sudden have like one of your deals has 20% vacancy, uh, and, and, you know, it's something that you're getting around to on a Friday because you have 13 other properties you got to deal with fires getting put out and you don't have the workflows in place. That's just as bad as the person that's managing that Bank of America, in my opinion, um, right. to that. So, yeah, I think that's awesome. So we have, you know, business experience, making sure that you have a full time operator and also further to drill down on that, making sure that operator, if they are met you know, operating a lot of things, has systems and people around them to accommodate that workflow. Um, anything else on part-time operators that you think would be a salient point for people to, to get? That's it for this one. All right, moving on. Number three, what's the next red flag? So number three is, and I touched on this a minute ago, is making sure that you have more than one managing partner with an operations team. And my preference personally is to have at least two, ideally three, but not really any more than about five. Because if you get too many cooks in the kitchen, then it really it has a, you start to have more possibilities of issues that are happening later on. But two to three partners is kind of where you want to kind of have, find your sweet spot. And the reason why you should never invest with somebody who only has one managing partner is that I actually have an investor friend of mine that I know personally that invested 200000 of his own money. And he also convinced a friend of his to bring in 200000 of his friend's money um, to a deal. And the operator, about six months into the deal, went ghost on them. They couldn't call him. He wouldn't respond to text messages. He wouldn't respond to emails. The property management company couldn't find him. And they don't know what happened to him. They think maybe he just went on a vacation down in Mexico and somehow you know, went on a hiking trip and fell and died and nobody knows about it. I mean, it was just like a weird fluke thing. But if you have one managing partner and they fall off the face of the earth, what are you going to do? There's no one to go after. And they tried to like, you know, to look at the operating agreement and figure out if there's a way for them to be able to you know, take over the operations to be able to get their money back or at least be able to, you know, get the cash flow that's coming off of it because they weren't getting any of the cash flows. And so they couldn't find the operator and they couldn't get their money back. And what they had to do was is they had to go through arbitration. Well, the operating agreement said that the arbitration you have to do with that person. And how do you arbitrate with somebody who's not there? And so they had to get a, a court order to try to get the, to be able to have the, to take over, even if we, they couldn't find the operator or they went ghost on them or whatever. And so um, that's still kind of in limbo or, or pending or whatever. But so that was one of the things that I have made as a red flag is that I don't ever want to invest with somebody if there's only one managing partner involved. There has to be at least two, and those two have to be unrelated people. So it can't be like a husband and wife and call it two. It has to be two unrelated people, um, and ideally three partners now on each one of the, the, the projects that are being put together. You want to make sure that, that that particular operations team has at least two to three different partners. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really good point to make, you know, one, making sure that you don't have that issue. And two, I think that also opens you up, you know, especially, you know, with these with these deals being financed with non-recourse debt, you know, it's all good and good and great, but there are issues if there is, if there is fraud, um, you know, with there being liabilities uh, extended in granted, if there's only, you know, one person, uh, you know, maybe that doesn't have as much of an issue, but, you know, with regard to, you know, financing issues and also just the fact that you don't have any other, you know, calmer head prevailing, you know, if there's an issue, uh, you know, I think that's definitely a big thing. And then also, you know, too many people, you want to be able to have swift and efficient decision-making. And if you have 10 general partners, 
well, the likelihood of that, you know, kind of goes down the drain. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a really good point. I actually have brought that up with uh, another person I interviewed too. So I would say to people listening, you know, this is something that I've heard from, from multiple people. And I've actually had, (coughs) had this point made on the podcast. So if you're keeping track and you're trying to, you know, make sure that you're hearing the same thing from the same kind of people, number three, I think is definitely one that is, you know, a very, very uh, important point to understand is, is the management, um, you know, needing to have some type of uh, expansion, because with so many assets and so many different things going on, just one person being involved is is probably never going to be a good idea. Having a couple people with experience pooling those years of experience is always going to be a good idea. Yeah. And I, and I think it also allows that operations team to be able to grow at a faster clip when you have multiple people that can help from an operations perspective. I think that's one of the key reasons why we've been able to grow our portfolio as fast as we have is because we do have a really good solid partnership team. And we have all three of us have complementary skill sets that we bring to the table. So instead of trying to like, I, I could I have just not brought on other partners and done it myself? Yes, I probably could have, but um, I don't think we would have been as been able to grow as fast as we have today. And you know, being able to have other people to, that you have in business that can help share the load and share the responsibilities is is really key to a lot of people's success when it comes to growing and expanding. Absolutely, there's, there's typically never a, an issue with having a more experience uh, to a point uh, involved. You know, obviously, you know, one to keep that probably you know less than five. Uh, you know, or being kind of a max, but, uh, you know, more experience and, and things like that rarely hurt things to the degree that less experience or, or kind of fewer people uh, t- typically would. So great mm-hmm. point on number three, uh, number four. Number four, number four is a deal that has no preferred return or a preferred return with a GP catch up. So basically, if for those of you who might not know what a preferred return is, a preferred return is where 100% of the cash flows goes to the investors up to a certain percentage return. So like, for example, in our deals, it ranges between about seven to 10%, depending on the class of asset and, and the asset share type, if you will, in that class and that, that asset. Um, but but 100% of those cash flows can go to the investors up to a certain preferred return. And so uh, every deal that you that you invest in, you should look for those preferred returns. And for us, it's a big red flag that we don't want to invest unless there is that preferred return. The preferred returns are aligning the interest with the investors so that the investors get the preferred distributions of cash flows because obviously they're the ones that are putting the majority of the money up front. And so that preferred return allows those investors to receive those cash flows and the sale proceeds first up to a certain return amount. Um, and then that deal, and the main reason why is because that deal couldn't be done without those investors. And so the operators should be willing to provide those preferred returns to maintain that successful relationship. And what a lot of operators will say, not a lot, but some of the operators that don't do a preferred return will say um, one of two things. They'll say, um, well, my, my investors are not sophisticated enough to fully understand or wrap their minds around preferred returns or different waterfalls. They just do a straight split of the cash flows and that's it. 
Um, for us, you know, we we have we only work with with high net worth accredited investors that are, you know, uh, I like to always say our investors are smart enough to figure that stuff out because um, it's not that complicated to be able to understand and wrap your mind around you getting all the prof all the profits up to a certain percentage. And then the other reason why operators will will, will say this is that they're usually it's usually an, an, an undercapitalized group that needs those cash flows to be able to support their own their own uh, personal uh, uh, income to be able to allow them to stay afloat. And so it's that and that's what to me where the red flag comes in is that it's it's a uh, it's it's a it's an under usually an undercapitalized group that you probably don't or shouldn't be investing with anyway because if something happens to the property you want to make sure you have a very well capitalized group that can come in with extra equity if they need to to be able to save a deal or or infuse it with cash or whatever so you can you know, kind of avoid some of those capital calls in the future um, up to this point we have in our group we have never had to do a, a capital call and we make sure we have you know lots of operating reserves and and capex reserves to be, able to, to be able to prevent that in the future for our offerings. Um, but ha not having a preferred return is, is a big red flag for us. And then a, a preferred return with a GP catch-up is a big red flag because, and this is where it gets a little bit nuancey here, Alex, is that you, know, you, you definitely don't want to invest with a deal that does not have preferred returns. But then if you look at a deal that has preferred returns, you want to make sure that you look to see if they have a GP catch-up. Um, the GP catch-up is basically saying, okay, 100% of the cash flows are going to go to you as the investor up to that 7% preferred return. And then everything else after that will have an equity split too. Um, with a GP catch-up, it basically says, yes, we're going to give you 100% of the cash flows up to that certain percentage return. But before you get any more cash flows over and above that preferred return, we're going to go back as if we were, we were both, we're basically going to catch ourselves up from the GP side as if we were already splitting the cash from the very beginning. And so if you do a preferred return for two or three or four years, it can get quite expensive to catch up a GP um, with that type of a, of, a, of a return profile, especially with the way the current market is. And uh, a lot of times what happens is those deals, you, it's very hard to make it make sense because it's so expensive to pay back the GP that it really eats into the returns for the, for the, for the LP investors. And so for us, no preferred return is a big red flag and the preferred return with GP catch up. Yeah. And I would think that, you know, if these things are properly structured and, and run, you know, you, you can make, you know, a good deal of money just on your initial position as a GP and also management fees and everything else like that. Um, it would seem to me that that's a little bit, uh, you know, just self-serving uh, to a point, you know, if you have that GP catch up uh, to, to that, uh, I would, I would definitely kind of see where you're coming at with that of, you know, the, the general partners being a little bit more concerned with their, net return versus the, you know, the good stewardship of their client's capital. Correct. Yeah. All right. Great. So number four makes absolutely perfect sense. No preferred return or preferred return with a GP catch up. So what do you got for number five? Number five is modeling a refinance into the return projections. And the reason why this is a big red flag is because a lot of times, especially right now with the way deals are very, very tight, the only way to have them make sense is to model a refinance in year probably two or three. And the reason why that's a big red flag is that whenever you, uh, whenever you, you put a refinance um, in there, 
you basically are guessing as to what kind of terms you're going to get because nobody knows what the what, what the what the the, the debt terms are going to look like in two or three years from now, and so it's very very challenging to really model every a refinance, but it can really juice the returns for investors. And usually where you will see a a refinance modeled into the return projections is where you have a preferred return with GP catch-up. Because it's so expensive, the only way they can pay for it is to model a refinance into the return projections. And so it's sometimes they don't necessarily come out and say, hey, we're going to, we're modeling a refinance in here. They might say we're planning to do a refinance or something like that, but you really want to ask and maybe even review the underwriting. So I always prefer to review that underwriting um, of that deal prior to making any type of final division, my final de- um, decision to invest. And it's one of the main items that I look for as to whether or not that offer op- operators, including a refinance in the underwriting projections. And if the, if the returns are contingent upon um, the refinance occurring at a certain point in time. And this was put in here because my wife and I invested in a deal that they were supposed to do a, a refinance and ended up getting pushed back by a year. And then they recently sold it. And when they sold it, they, they sold it for less than what they projected to us. And it's because of them modeling and then the refinance. And if the market wasn't good to them, like it has been the last couple of years, that deal would not have made as much money at all. And we would, we, we, I don't think we would have lost money, but we, 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 it would have been a significant reduction in the returns. But because of the market being in our favor and cap rates compressing and, and the interest rates going down, it allowed us to be able to sell that asset and still make a nice profit off of it. Yeah, well, two things. One, that smells an awful lot like the prevailing sentiment of investors in six, seven, and eight, where it was like, okay, great. You know, we have these, you know, this money up front, and then we'll, you know, refi out the back, and we're just projecting our our returns kind of propped up on the assumption of the one availability of money and two, the price of that money. Uh, so, you know, to me, that just that just goes to show saying, hey, you know, you're assuming that money is going to be available to do the refinance and at a rate that's commensurate with people actually making money, which is impossible to know. You know, I don't know if it's going to, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone five years from now when it comes to financial markets. So I think that's, that's huge. And I mean, in, in my looking at this, I think that that honestly ranks higher than some of these. I mean, that, that to me is a huge red flag, um, but it's good to include it in here. Now with, uh, with that said, the second point is, you know, how would someone necessarily identify that? Is it something that is always going to typically be readily disclosed in a uh, offering uh, document? Or is it something you have to dig a little bit deeper to see uh, if they're trying to bake in a uh, refi to the return projection? So you have to look at the underwriting um, and, and, and you can you can look at the underwriting or just ask the operator because the operator is going to usually tell you whether or not that's going to be in there. Like it's not something they, they are going to usually just withhold, but they don't necessarily always come out with it and say, hey, we're modeling a refinance into the return projections. Like for me, I'm sophisticated enough that is ask for the underwriting. I look for it myself. Um, but you can also, if you're if not if you're not very comfortable looking at modeling or whatever inside of uh, different types of people's underwriting, you know, spreadsheets or whatever, just to ask them. Say, hey, are you are you with these projections? Are you modeling a refinance? And if so, at what point in time are you are you modeling it? Is it a year, two years? Usually, it's between about eighteen to thirty six months in. They'll they'll model in some sort of a refinance. 
and how common is I mean that just to me that's just that's crazy that 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 gets baked in um, as an assumption as a basis for return it's one thing to to bake into an offering document saying we anticipate a a refinance at x date but to model returns projected on a refinance when there's no possible way to know what again the availability or the price of that money is going to be just seems crazy to me is that something that's commonly done is it kind of something that's waning or how often does that come up yeah i've seen it quite a bit so it's it's it is definitely common to see this um and that's why i always say you got to make sure that you look and you ask them for it now and i don't want you guys to for those of you listening i don't want you to get me wrong here it's not that i don't like refinances i i love refinances they can they can do a lot of you know they can have a lot of benefit for the offering but I would rather a refinance be the icing on the cake or the cherry on top, right? I don't want it to be what makes the deal tick. I don't want it to be something that it's contingent upon the return projections in order for us to do a refinance. So yes, I'd like to do refinances, but I don't want them modeled into the initial underwriting because I want to see what the deal can do and how it can be stressed without a refinance before they start to actually give you any type of return projections based on the refinance. Oh, now, I 100% I, agree. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the, the, the one situation where I've seen it um, uh, uh, do okay, and I say do okay, um, if, they, if, they if they give you two projections, like, hey, here's what the deal looks like without the finance, refinance, and here's what it looks like with the refinance, I'm fine with that. Right. As long as I can see what it looks like without the refinance and I'm okay with those returns, then that's fine. Because I've seen some people do that with like, hey, this is this is this deal has really good solid returns even without a refinance. But look what it does if we can actually execute on this refinance. And I'm fine with those scenarios. It's just I don't want a deal to have just decent returns and they've modeled in a refinance. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm the same way when it comes to my investing in any realm. I like to see what my numbers are going to be based on the deal as it sits the day that the pin hits the paper, not an assumption down the road of, of, of something happening. And obviously with any investing, you know, you don't know where things are going to go. You know, there could be X, Y, or Z that happens that causes something to go south. But I think that's that's definitely a very, very good point that you make. So again, five, modeling a refi uh, to a re modeling a return projection with a refi baked in. Um, number five, what have we got for number six? Number six is classifying distributions as return of capital. And and there's, the, the nuance here is uh, that when distributions are being made, um, they should be classified as return on capital and not return of capital. This is a very important distinction, and you should, the only way you're going to find out what this, whether it's return of or return on, which is, if you think about it, if you look at that, it's only one letter different, right? Um, you have to make sure you read your, your private placement memorandums, the PPMs carefully, and the waterfalls to fully understand how they're calculating and classifying those, those distributions. And the reason why it has a lot of implications is that um, when you're when you classify distributions as return of capital, um, it is typically reducing your capital, your what we, what we call your UCC, your or your uh, yeah your UCC, the unreturned capital contributions. 
And your preferred return is based off of the unreturned capital contributions. So if they're classified as return of capital, that means that your, your unreturned capital balance is going down. And so if your preferred return is based off of that unreturned capital contribution balance, that means over time, your preferred return is going down because you have less and less in the actual bucket to be able to calculate it off of. Now, the only person that this kind of structure benefits is the operator. It basically gets them closer to an equity split before, so that so that they can start to see those returns faster instead of maintaining it and doing redistributions as return on capital. And from from a tax perspective, the uh, the operators will say, well, it's more advantageous from a tax perspective to classify it as a return of capital versus a return on capital. And the nuance here is is it doesn't really matter how you classify it. Uh, from, a, from an IRS perspective, it's all about the waterfall perspective. Because what we typically try to do is from a IRS perspective, it's a, they're classified as return of capital. So you're not paying taxes on that, right? Um, until you have recouped all of your capital. But from a waterfall perspective, you want to make sure it's classified as return on capital so that it's not reducing your capital balance and it's not diluting your preferred return, your preferred returns along the way. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, my question to that is if they're classifying it in the PPM as return of capital, would that, I mean, I understand the, the UCC, um, but the, the aspect of would that necessarily, let's say I have a $100,000, um, you know, position as a limited partner in deal X. So in deal X, my $100,000 my $100, capital investment, if they're paying me back, let's say a quarterly, my quarterly, you know, distribution from that, uh, is being classified as a return of capital. If I get a $5,000 check uh, in the mail, you know, Q1, does that now mean I have a, a, a equity position of only 95K or how does that work? Is it to actually dilute my position until it just goes away or, or is it simply just on that unrealized capital position? Uh, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so it doesn't usually change your percentage of ownership your percentage of ownership stays the same, but the amount that you have contributed to that ownership percentage goes down. And that's where your, your preferred returns are calculated off of. So so let's just give you a quick example based on what you just said. So you, you invested 100,000. And let's just say like year one, you got a you know 10% return, right? So now you've been given 10,000 back. It was classified as return of capital. Now your new capital balance is 90,000. Now you still might own 10% of the deal or whatever percentage it was. That original percentage of ownership doesn't change, but now you're the for year 2, your 10% is only going to be 9,000 instead of 10,000. And so now at the end of year 2, you take that 90,000 subtract the 9,000, now you're at 81,000. So now your near third year is going to be based off of 81,000. So you can see that over time, when it's classified as return of capital, you're getting a lesser and lesser return. And so the, the operator is getting closer and closer to their equity split. Yeah, absolutely. And it would also make sense from a taxing perspective, if you're getting paid out on K-1 uh, from this and you're getting, let's say, a return of capital, yes, it's a return of your basis in the investment. So maybe at base value, it might look a little bit better you know, that year. But if you have, let's say, you know, let's say they've zeroed out, you know, you know, I doubt it would be there for, you know, as long as it would take to zero that position out, but then you have nothing to offset that in the future. And then all of your depreciation, everything that's been passed through was kind of lost. It, it, am I getting that kind of right? 
Well, it depends because if you have an excess depreciation, you can use that in other types of passive or active gains, depending on how you're classified, right? Yeah, you, you, and you can and you can pass you can carry that forward too. Correct. Um, yeah. Okay. So I was a little bit off on that, but yeah, it absolutely makes sense um, of of that. You know, essentially, you're just getting less and less. Now, is there any in any world? where this wouldn't necessarily be an issue or would be a better fit for everyone involved? Or is it one of those kind of, again, we're talking hard red flags for everything. Is there any kind of unique boutique experience where that would work to an advantage or is it kind of across the board just doesn't really work out? Across the board, the only person that benefits is the operator. There is <laughs> no scenario where I can think of or that I have seen where it's benefited the investor. So from that perspective, that's why it's a red flag is that the only person is benefiting. And, and, it, and again, it goes back to an undercapitalized group, right? Because if they're undercapitalized, you're going to probably see distributions as return of capital. You're going to see preferred returns with GP catch-up or just no preferred return at all. But if you have the if you have the preferred return with GP catch-up, that's going to be in there. And you're going to see high fees and you're going to probably see a, a refinance modeled in. So a lot of these, if one of them is present, they're all going to be present, right? Yeah, yeah you, so. you scratch the surface and this is just kind of, you know, that one, that it's, it's that one little piece of uh, termite damage that you see and you know there's a whole colony behind it because if there's one termite wing, there's, you know, tens of thousands behind it. So yeah. I would probably say the the one crux that if you find it, you're going to probably see multiple ones is the refinance modeled in. Because in order, the reason why they have to refinance, the reason why they have to model in the refinance is because the returns don't make sense unless they do, because of all these other red flags that might be present. Yeah, no, it makes sense. All right. So that, you know, we're rounding it coming home. What's number seven? Number seven is no skin in the game from the operator. And this is a big one, right? Um, I actually was just talking to an, to an operator a couple of months ago, actually, excuse me, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and she was telling me that she's only invested in like two of the deals that she's done. Um, and so to me, I want to make sure that, that we have, uh, I mean, we're investing with an operator that has skin in the game and skin in the game in every deal that they're investing in. I want to make sure I have that alignment of interest. And with our group, what we like to do is we like to invest around 10% of the initial equity into every deal, right? Um, because we want to make sure we have a large nugget that's involved so that the investors see that we have a large deal involved, right? So we have a deal right now that's that we're, we're raising for out of Savannah, Georgia. It's a 35.3 million dollar capital stacks. We'll put in three and a half million into that deal alongside of our investors, because we want to make sure that they know that we are really we are really sold on this investment, just like they are, right? Now there might be some newer operators that maybe doesn't don't necessarily have the capital to be able to invest that kind of a size of a, of an investment in there. And so, to me, as long as I see at least a hundred thousand dollar minimum, that's what I like to see invested from an operator. So, no, and, that, and that makes sense. And across the board, a lot of times, you know, when dealing with any, you know, any investment, if you're investing and in, I say investment outside of the stock market, sure. you know, you're dealing with, you know, people and boots on the ground. If you're dealing with someone that has no vested interest or motivation, you know, if they have no financial incentive to work in the best interest of something, they walk away. What, what do they lose versus what do you, what do you lose? Yep. Now, it kind of brings up a point here is that, you know, a common theme, or I should say common, but a way a lot of people get their start, especially if they didn't, let's say, have, you know, a, a lot of money coming in is that they'll go out and they'll try to hunt down and find deals and, you know, bring something to a group of investors. And maybe they get put in as a general partner with a lot less experience and a lot less capital. Um, you know, is that a deal that, again, you kind of go back to number one and say, hey, since you have, you know, but let's say you have three other very experienced operators in this one, you know, person that, you know, isn't, but put in all the legwork of finding and putting together the deal and, 
and they maybe let's say have you know put in let's say ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars what they can afford to put in is that kind of still fall under that red flag or would you weight that fact that they have you know three very experienced operators in the other general partner position um to kind of offset that so long as they're putting something in and they have you know brought value in, in some form to this deal? No, you definitely, I definitely take all that into account, right? And, and when I say, you know, I want to see them investing alongside the, the operator, investing alongside the investors at a minimum 100,000, it is the minimum 100,000 isn't per partner that's in the deal, right? I, I would like to see at least an 100,000 across the entire partnership. So if they have, you know, one person's putting in 50, the other one's putting in 40, and the other one's putting in 10, I don't really care. I just want to see that they have a vested interest in the success of the deal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that makes perfect sense. And again, I was just trying to make sure in the context of all this, you know, that we've mm -hmm. talked about that, you know, that's a very, you know, hard rule. And again, we're talking hard rules. Just wanted to make sure that that was, you know, contextualized for people because, you know, yeah. we're going to get all sorts of people listening to this and we have all sorts of clients, you know, some are saying, hey, you know, I'm trying to get into multifamily and I'm willing to put it, you know, walking around and finding and tracking this stuff down. And, you know, don't have the capital to say, okay, I'm just going to stroke a check for a hundred, but I can, you know, do 10, but I put all that other additional capital in there. Um, the sure. Manpower. So just to kind of recap, we have, you know, first experience in business. I think that's a great thing to put out there. Um, you know, if they're a part-time operator, big red flag, you want to make sure that they're completely committed to being a good steward of your capital. Um, you know, more than one managing partner, meaning you don't have just the single person. And like you said, you had, uh, you know, a, a friend or an associate that invested with one person and they fall off the map, they die, they go away. And what do you do? And like you said, they had an arbitration clause that said it had to be arbitrated with that individual. Well, if you can't find them now, now you're stuck in a whole mess. So I think that's another great one is having more, but also, you know, contextualizing that and the concept of, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen, not wanting to have, you know, more than five, I think is what you said. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Not wanting to have more than five, keeping it, you know, streamlined and efficient, uh, uh, no preferred return or a preferred return with a GP catch-up. That was kind of a new one on me, but definitely absolutely makes sense once you kind of explained it. Modeling a refi into a return projection. Again, not something that I would have ever thought was being done, but again, all these things make sense. Uh, classifying distributions as return of capital and not return on capital. So that one letter difference can make all the difference in it. And then not having skin in the game um, as far as a financial uh, uh, financial vested interest in it, not just coming in and saying, hey, we're going to put together a deal, take all the investor money. And then if this thing goes belly up, then, hey, you know, we're not out anything, but our investors just lost their shirt with it. Um, I think there's a great point, Stan. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, kind of going through this with us. I think it's a good thing to have in people's tool chest for identifying this stuff, especially if they're new. And, you know, hey, I've been doing this for 10 years on the financial services side of things. And I, I've never heard of number six. Um, that never even was something that would cross my mind as, as something that would need to be looked at. So I learned something. I hope everyone else did. Um, now, great, you know, kind of, I think we're hitting right on the timeline that we're uh, looking to hit for this podcast. Um, anything that you want to kind of leave people with, and if they want to, you know, maybe look at what you have going on, or maybe deals, uh, you know, that they want to potentially be invested in, how do they get in touch with you? And where do they find you? Sure. Yeah. So there's two different things that I would, I would say that you can do to kind of follow some of the things that we're doing more. Uh, first off, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, you can go to linkwithdan.com. Very simple. It just brings you straight over to my LinkedIn profile. So you can connect with me there. That's linkwithdan.com. Um, you can also go to our website, passiveinvesting.com. 
on the top right-hand corner of that website, there's a button that says, join the Passive Investor Club. Click that button, fill out the form, and one of our investor relations team members will reach out to you to schedule a phone call to get to know you a little bit more and discuss what kind of different opportunities we have available and to make sure that we're a good fit together. But uh, appreciate you inviting me on, Alex. It's been great. I love talking about this topic. It's something that's very near to us and dear to us because we've, we've done so many different, oper- we've, we've vetted so many different operators. And uh, for those of you who want a recap of this, uh, you can just go to passiveinvesting.com slash red flags, and that'll bring you to a page that'll allow you to be able to get this information and a little more uh, different nuances inside of it as well. All right. Well, Vin, thank you very much, Dan. And uh, this has been another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.